Welcome to episode 143 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. This is the jet lag edition. I am just off a 14-hour uh, red-eye uh, uh, series of flights back from Israel. Uh, very cool week, uh, including spending time with uh, uh, Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast fans in Israel. Who, who would have guessed uh, uh, there were enough to actually get in a room and put around a table? Um, we are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today by our guest uh, uh, commentator, Matthew Green, uh, the assistant, an assistant professor uh, at Johns Hopkins Information Security Institute and uh, a uh, prolific commentator on all things cryptographic and security-minded. Welcome, Matt. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, and also on our panel to discuss the news of the day, uh, Michael Vadis in our New York office, uh, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, and Maury Shank in our London office, uh, uh, now uh, uh, our advisor on all things technology and Europe-related. Uh, uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. So why don't we jump right into it? Uh, um, uh, Maury, uh, uh, the uh, European Security Agency, kind of the equivalent of uh, DHS in some respects, uh, um, has put out a report uh, joining the crypto debate uh, and pretty much joining it on the side where you'd expect to find DHS. Uh, uh, did you take a look at the report? Yes, I did. Um I don't know if um, it's interesting you say DHS would be as much in the privacy civil liberties camp as ENISA is. I mean, they, they took a pretty strong position uh, that there should be no backdoors and that, you know, backdoors or weakening encryption would benefit, could benefit criminals and weaken um, digital signatures and that it would hurt the European technology industry. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I, I did see it not so much as privacy and civil liberties focused as security focused. Uh, I, I didn't see as much of the privacy and civil liberties stuff. And it felt like people who, you know, you, who could have been at uh, NSA's Information Assurance Directorate when there was one uh, uh, talking about the risks of messing with encryption from a security point of view. Yeah, and I suppose their task is to advise the EU institutions. Inisa's task is to advise the EU institutions on security, and it was um, primarily a security-focused report. But there's language in there about privacy as you know a main interest that is uh, that is guaranteed by encryption, at least in the commercial context, probably more than you would see in similar documents in the U.S. It had a slightly musty air to it, I mean, considering it just came out. Uh, uh, it, it wanted to go back and play around with the clipper chip and talk about the debate that hurt U.S. industry, so supposedly uh, um, a, a, because of U.S. efforts to control encryption, which struck me as having no relevance to the current debate. I mean, Nobody is proposing we solve this problem with export controls. Um, and if you don't solve it with export controls, the likelihood you're going to hurt your industry rather than uh, somebody else's who wants to export to um, your territory uh, uh, strikes me as you know not a particularly plausible reason not to regulate. Uh, 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 and this the digital signature thing, I remember that debate. Uh, Matt's probably too young to remember this debate, but uh, there was all this talk about key escrow, and uh, because digital signatures were coming along, everybody wanted to make the point that if you were going to escrow encryption keys, keys you shouldn't escrow uh, signature keys because that would give government uh, uh, the authority to or the ability to forge documents in the name of citizens, and we couldn't think of any uh, law enforcement or national security reason to do that. Uh, uh, which again is sort of as, strikes me as not fundamental to the debate these days, but maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. No, I, I agree with that. One gets the impression that maybe there was a uh, junior analyst who had a couple of weeks free and went back and did the research about what people have been saying about this for the last ten years or so. And, and ah, yeah, yeah, down, yeah. It does it does feel a little like a uh, an intern's paper, uh, Mike? You you had something to say. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, all, all of this is par for the course for a product of the EU. I mean, <laughs> they'll, they'll give a historical examination 
uh, write it in bureaucraties, um, and then in the end say virtually nothing of importance. But um, I thought there was an interesting sentence at the end of, of this whole discussion that, that you both have alluded to. There's a sentence that reads, other procedural approaches should be explored that focus on the power of the judicial process to find solutions, which I took as meaning um, that a solution like uh, the All Writs Act relied on by the FBI to try to compel Apple to decrypt an iPhone uh, should be part of the law enforcement toolbox. I they think that's say I, it expressly, I, I, but that's that's what I took this sentence to yeah, mean. Yeah, I think that's I, I think that's I think that's the emerging consensus in Europe. I may be wrong about that, but I don't I don't think they <clears throat> resonate at all to Apple's argument that uh, if they can do it, they shouldn't have to because they're. Apple, um, uh, but uh, uh, we'll have to see. It, it was a it was a kind of uh, um, glance in the other direction, at least, uh, uh, probably for people who were going to say, "Well, don't you have any solution?" And I guess that is their solution. Um, so, speaking of solutions, we've seen a, a couple of settlements that uh, I thought were pretty interesting because they were high profile breaches when they occurred, or at least high-profile lawsuits. Uh, 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 Michael, Ashley Madison has settled its claim with the FTC, which is now riding to the rescue of uh, uh, people who want to have affairs securely. Yeah, where's Jason when you need him? He's the one who usually covers the uh, Ashley Madison case, but, but, but I'll take it on. In this case, um, it settled not just with the FTC, but also with 13 states, the District of Columbia, and also with the Canadian and Australian privacy commissioners. Um, and interestingly, the, the, the allegations that were a part of the settlement uh, or part of the complaint that was settled involved not just lack security, but also some false statements that Ashley Madison uh, had made, uh, false statements about how great their security was, how confidential customer information was kept, um, but also some things that were part of the, the operation of the website. For instance, they would use fake female profiles to try to lure men uh, to become customers. Didn't they so, even have like, bots? Didn't, didn't they have bots who would who would answer your mail too uh, to kind of flirt with you? I'm I'm not sure if they were bots or if they were you know live operators, uh, but but that wouldn't surprise me. Uh, but that was part of the it, it, the fake profiles were part of it. What what was interesting to me was was not the the usual 20 years of oversight. You know, have a third party assess your comprehensive data security program, put it in writing. All that stuff is par for the course, but this this was actually one of the rare cases that also involved a pretty significant monetary penalty. And I and usually data security settlements have no monetary uh, penalty attached to it, but in this case, I think it was because part of the allegation was that uh, Ashley Madison would allow customers the the um, uh, the ability supposedly to completely delete their profile if they wanted to get out of Ashley Madison and not be worried that they'd be found out. So for 19 bucks, you could have the full delete option. And in fact, of course, it didn't fully, at least it didn't promptly and immediately fully delete all of your profile information. So the fact that there was that $19 that was gained allegedly at the result of, of a deceptive statement, I think, is what was the main basis for the large settlement, um, which was something like, I think, $17 million, but reduced to 1.6 total because of the company's inability to pay. Uh, okay. So basically, they, this was all the uh, blood they could get from the stone. Yeah, apparently, which which is surprising. I, I would have thought there'd be a lot more... Um, uh, people still using Ashley Madison, but maybe the breach really did kill their business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would think there would be more money in adultery, but who knows? Uh, okay, uh, uh, and then Google settled its email scanning case dirt cheap, as I read it. Uh, you know, uh, they, uh, they promised to scan at a different place in the, uh, in the process of, uh, delivering your mail, uh, and, uh, they gave the, uh, the lawyers a tip, uh, for their costs and, they're offering kind of something close to nothing to everybody who's who allegedly uh, was wiretapped. Is that right? Yeah. So the, the case was brought under the Wiretap Act and the California Invasion of Privacy Act, and it was based on the on Google's alleged um, uh, interception of emails with non-Gmail users while the emails were in transmission. Uh, and so, as a result of the settlement, Google promised essentially not to scan emails while they were in transmission, but only 
uh, once they arrived in the Gmail user's inbox or once a message sent from a Gmail user arrives in the Gmail user's sent box. So essentially, they're only going to scan when the emails are uh, in storage rather than in transmission. Um, they can still, still scan for security and other purposes while things are in transmission, but they can't use uh, the, the results of scanning for advertising purposes until the data is at rest. Wow, um, I, f- I feel so much so much more secure so and private. Secure. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, it, it, so the plaintiff's lawyers, you know, they got a nice um, uh, attorney's fee out of this. The, the named plaintiffs get a couple of thousand dollars, uh, but the class plaintiffs get nothing. The, wow. you know, members of the class get, get nothing other than that feeling of, of warm, fuzzy security that you just alluded to. <laughs> But, uh, you know, congratulations to uh, to Google for lawyering this. This is more or less what Yahoo did to settle its claim, if I remember. Same kind of thing. Well, okay, we'll, uh, uh, we'll intercept Yahoo Mail at a slightly different place, and then it won't be interception. It'll be stored communications uh, uh, scanning. Right. And there's, and there's, you know, a somewhat broader exception that um, use, a somewhat broader, broader exception in the Stored Communications Act for the use of, uh, stored data than there is in the wiretap act. And I, I guess that's, that's really what this is all coming down to. Um, but it, it, this, this does show that we are in the wrong business or at least on the wrong side of the business when it comes to making easy money. <laughs> I don't know if this was easy money, but, uh, uh, uh and I, I have to say it's been a long time since I gave one of my rants about how privacy law Almost always turns out to be completely unexpected in its actual impact ten years later, uh, to the point where it makes no sense to anyone and is therefore only used by powerful people to squash the less powerful. Uh, uh, but this is this is at least half of that paradigm coming true. The uh, the law makes no sense um, uh, because it was drafted by uh, uh, privacy enthusiasts. 40 years ago, and we uh, we live in a different technological era um, in which we really don't think of ourselves as having much protection from the kind of scanning that Google does. Speaking of which, uh, while we're abusing the European Union, it, it, it has decided that it needs to either um, regulate less or regulate more in, in, in terms of privacy because of distinctions between t- different technologies. And I know our listeners will be in enormous uncertainty and doubt uh, on tenderhooks to find out whether the European Union has decided that that means there should be less privacy regulation or more. Maury, the answer is? More. <laughs> Tell well, us. I can give some details. Okay. Um, well, we all know the, the General Data Protection Regulation has been adopted and is coming into force in May 2018, but the, there appear to be people in the EU who think that it's not good enough and they're discussing some even more substantial privacy regulation. Uh, the, there's been a leaked um, set of proposals from the European Commission, and the main things that have been reported um, are that websites, there's a suggestion that websites would have to opt in, do only opt-in marketing so that you, you know, which would really shut down, um, well, there would presumably be ways around it, but it would substantially limit current marketing practices for mm-hmm. websites and, and the like, and presumably mobile apps as well. The other one that's been reported is for over-the-top communication services like Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp or Skype. Um that there would be stricter data protection requirements on things like location data and presumably similar opt-in and opt-out issues. These things are at a really preliminary stage, but as you said, Stuart, um, we should always, we should never be surprised if, uh, if Europe looks for more privacy regulation, although I'm more sympathetic to it than you are. Yeah. But you know, maybe the EU should just go straight to their, their ultimate goal here and start fining people for, for not starting tech businesses in Europe. Uh, um, uh, that's, that's, that's their problem. And of course they are trying to regulate their way to, uh, uh, to a Silicon Valley. And, and, um, uh, to my mind, it's completely, uh, uh, hopeless. Uh, but they just can't help themselves. Well, we agree on that completely. I mean, uh, I'm sympathetic to the EU's, uh, the privacy, uh, but the policy drivers of these things. But, you know, as a guy who also invests in the European technology industry, this, 
this kind of regulation and similar regulation in other areas does not help Europe uh, compete in the area, and it's unfortunate. But it does it does explain to people in Europe why they should have a an eminent privacy and data protection lawyer as their uh, one of their investors and board members. So it, it, it may be bad for the sector, but it's probably good for you. Yeah, it's it's how I sort of straddle the lawyer investor kind of thing and try to make money off it. All right. Uh, uh, so speaking of European regulation and hyper regulation in this space, uh, um, the fake news controversy in the United States has now gone global. Uh, and understandably, in some respects, uh, the, the narrative on the left is all these fake news stories were, uh, um, uh, were what led people, foolish people to vote for Trump instead of, uh, um, the inevitable Hillary Clinton. Uh, and it was the Russians who were behind a lot of the fake news and driving the fake news and, uh, turning it from a blog post into something that uh, got mainstream attention. Um, and the Germans have gotten very nervous about what that's going to mean for their next election because uh, uh, Angela Merkel has to be, after Hillary Clinton, the, Vladimir Putin's least favorite Western politician. Um, and so uh, West Germany is struggling with the fake news problem and coming up with a European solution, which is to fine Facebook for failing to take down fake news if it doesn't, uh, uh, if it, within 24 hours of receiving notice that a fake story is circulating. Is that, is that, is that for real? Uh, I had not heard that there were actual, that there was a suggestion that there could be fines as part of the process. Yes, that's, um, it, it, it I, comes I from, it's, it, it's, it's not, it, they're not saying it's the law now. It's, this is the SPD, uh, which is sort of the left of center, uh, party, uh, um, and, uh, uh, Thomas Opperman, uh, uh, who leads the party in, uh, the parliament has said, uh, we should find uh, uh, Facebook and other social media companies uh, 500,000 euros um, if they don't take down fake news stories or defamatory stories within 24 hours of getting notice. So it's not like there's going to be a lot of adjudication. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think that's a crazy characterization of what's been proposed. And some, you know, after the Google right to be forgotten, we could be surprised. My guess is that the legislators will realize pretty quickly that you can't ban fake news without a massive impact on free speech and more than people in Europe are willing to accept, even in, in Germany and even worrying about what the Russians might be doing to Angela Merkel. But I think they could be more aggressive um, and regulatory than than U.S. authorities on process, like for fact-checking and things like that. I suspect that that's where they'll get to. Yeah, well, and and it, it seems pretty clear that at least Facebook sees that coming because they've come up with this plan to let people flag news they think is fake, so it's now easier to say, I think this is fake. Uh, and then if, if a story gets enough, this is fake votes, then they're going to refer it to a panel of experts who I have to say all are um, straight or lean pretty far left. I mean, PolitiFact, it's the, the idea that they're a neutral source of fact-checking or the Washington Post and Glenn Kessler, uh, those guys um, have never seen a left-wing myth that they didn't uh, say was at least half true or a modest um, nuance that they couldn't turn into four Pinocchios. Uh, um, and the idea that that those folks are going to make the decision about what's fake and lead to stories being branded as fake news or taken down. I, I think, um, I mean, this is a, a hard problem for Facebook to deal with, but they are, uh, they're marching into territory that's going to be really ugly because every time they they label something fake there's going to be a debate about it and if the conservatives who already feel kind of abused by uh, 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 social media uh, get four case stories in a row where they think it's um, been falsely designated fake news uh, the political repercussions for social media companies are going to be pretty bad yeah uh, you know there are entire newspapers uh, that would have to go out of business if fake news is not permitted. I guess they could be advertised as spoofs, you know, the National Enquirer, 
in the U.S. is an <laughs> yes. example of that. Um, and the question is, where do you draw the line? You know, and um, a lot of stories have speculation. So it's, this is really dangerous territory. I suspect that it will end up in some accommodation on process uh, that's, you know, that takes into the fact it's really the volume of these stories and the and the speed at which they can spread that is uh, it's the problem. The general issue of news being falsified is hundreds of years old. Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a problem in both directions. You know, there are foreign governments uh, writing fake news and selling it to us, uh, and then there are going to be governments like Germany that have a, 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 a mainstream narrative that is heavily influenced by the government and which would probably have put three-quarters of the Republican Party on a list of uh, hate speech and fake news uh, propagation if they could have gotten away with it. Uh, uh, and they're going to be telling Facebook and Twitter, um, our narrative is the one you have to adopt uh, globally, or we'll start finding you for every story that uh, Breitbart uh, um, uh, publishes uh, on your site. I agree. That's the shape of the debate. It's going to be. It's going to be an interesting one. Yes, it will be. Yeah. Well, I know. I. I, I guess we, uh, Breitbart has its own government representative now uh, in the White House. So uh, uh, maybe there'll be some pushback on uh, European regulation. But uh, uh, whether there's going to be um, pushback on the fake news propaganda we get uh, might be a different question. All right. Well, uh, let's move, if we can, to uh, our interview and keep, uh, especially Maury if, uh, and, and Michael, if you're willing to stick around, I want to bridge into a discussion of the Russian hacking news developments uh, because, uh, 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 you know, uh, the, uh, uh, the story has just gotten more hyper uh, in the last week. Uh, um, the President Obama has said, I will retaliate. Uh, um, the Trump camp, after sort of doubling down on attacking the intelligence community, has begun to say, well, if we get a consensus recommendation from the uh, 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 intelligence agencies, we, uh, we, we are inclined to accept it. I think that's probably pushing it. Uh, John Podesta uh, has kind of jumped the shark, uh, uh, starting to talk about, um, or at least without any obvious evidence, suggesting that um, Trump and Putin colluded uh, on some of this stuff. Uh, um, maybe he's... Maybe that was just a, a bad moment because he's a, usually a pretty level-headed guy. Um, and there is some talk that uh, uh, the Russians are beginning to um, show at least the U.S. intelligence agencies that there could be a real cost for trying to retaliate. So uh, uh, first, Michael, uh, your assessment of where we stand on the uh, Russian hacking uh, uh, and the leaks that um, uh, doxed Podesta and the uh, Democratic National Committee. Well, I, I mean, I actually agree with you about Podesta, but, you know, maybe he's just learned that in order to get any attention, you have to make outrageous claims. Oh, uh, he should tweet them. <laughs> just tweet them, right, exactly. Um you know, I, 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 I agree with you with where, where we are. Um, I think it's, I think the Trump campaign is probably, uh, carefully now beginning to walk back the, the president elect's outright denial, uh, of Russian involvement. You know, I think once the electoral college votes are in and maybe he feels a little less insecure, uh, about, uh, his election, um, he'll be more inclined to, to accept what really is the unanimous view of the intelligence community. Um, and, you know, he's going to be responsible for the, this issue now starting January 20th. So yeah. uh, I think we're going to see a move towards um, uh, his accepting responsibility, but probably not as as far as I'd like to see him go, because this is a real national security problem. It's a problem that that undermines the, the very foundation of our democracy. Uh, and unless he unless he takes it seriously and, and uh, is willing to do something about this and confront Putin once he takes office, we're in for for years of trouble. 
Yeah, so there's been a lot of debate about uh, what exactly we could do, and, and um, uh, people are focusing on uh, uh, whether some of the things that have been talked about, like uh, highlighting Putin's fortune and where it came from and where it's located and uh, uh, the like, might not uh, have the same impact on him that his uh, uh, doxing of the DNC had on Hillary Clinton. Um, uh, and there's also, you know, the... The president prudently, but, you know, in my estimation, probably a little over prudently is asking for uh, an assurance that as the uh, the cycle of retaliation escalates, that the U.S. government will always have uh, the dominant hand. Um, a, so it isn't exactly clear what we could do. You got any suggestions for uh, for the president uh, while he's still in office? Well, my first suggestion is is really just an observation from from parenting young children, which is that when I tell them to cut it out, that that rarely works uh, as a strategy for getting them to stop bad behavior. Well, he's done that. So, 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 so something more than cut it out is is my first recommendation. Uh, my second recommendation is it's it's I think a, a really serious mistake to think about retaliation uh, solely or primarily. Uh, through cyber means. And that's where the discussion seems mainly to be that, oh, because they attacked us through cyber means, you know, uh, getting Podesta's emails and, and all the other stuff, that's what the retaliation uh, should be. And I think that's a, a mistake because as we've learned again and again, including in this uh, situation, no one is more vulnerable than we are to cyber attacks. Um, and so I don't see the sense in responding in a way that is likely to lead to further escalation. We have lots of other things we can do, including sanctions, um, which will, would, uh, and including, uh, you know, indictments that would limit people's ability to travel, uh, people at senior levels of the, the Russian government. We can do things economically. I mean, there's a whole range of diplomatic and, and economic and, and criminal law enforcement things we can do that have nothing to do with cyber and I think won't take us down that, that terrible road of, of escalation. Yeah, you, we could, well, you know, you could, you could do a mix. You could use cyber intelligence collection to expand sanctions, uh, in ways that perhaps, uh, Putin and his inner circle, uh, are not, um, uh, prepared for. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I continue to think, I want to know, you know, does he use Botox? And if so, how often does he get injected? Uh, uh, um, have his, uh, abs been photoshopped? Uh, 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 you know, uh, how many ballerinas is he sleeping with? Uh, those are, those are things that I think everybody wants to know. Um, and, and, uh, ought to be able to find out about, although the, probably the ballerina thing would do him more good than, than harm. Um, uh, so let me, let me, Bring Matt Green into the uh, uh, the conversation, uh, Matt. One of the things, as we're talking about retaliation, it's pretty clear that Russia has begun to think about what it's going to do if if there is retaliation. Uh, um, and uh, after a substantial uh, silent period, uh, shadow brokers, which is the uh, Russian front, I think most people believe, uh, um, that offered for sale a whole bunch of uh, NSA hacking tools has suddenly popped up again, offering to sell them. And I think they may have sold or given them to the Intercept or at least one or two. The Intercept did a long story saying, uh, yeah, we think these uh, tools are clearly NSA tools and clearly stolen from the NSA office that does the hacking. Uh, I know you looked at this. Um, what's your assessment of uh, what's going on here? So I have looked uh, a bit at the tools. Um, so I, I kind of went through the first release. They, they made a big public release a, a, a few months ago, uh, and they are tools that are probably NSA tools. Uh, they match up with some of the documents that were leaked by uh, Snowden. Uh, they, they seem to actually exploit zero-day vulnerabilities in a bunch of routers and, and real products. So, so it's the real deal. Now, the the thing about these these uh, tools is that they all seem to be at least two or three years old. So this is not a brand new hack. This mm-hmm. is not something that came out recently. Still, that doesn't really explain where it came from. Uh, whether this was these were tools that were taken off of a server that you know the NSA had uploaded these to a server before running their own attacks and they were stolen from that server, or whether the shadow brokers, whoever they are, had some kind of internal access to the NSA. We don't know that. Um, what what does seem to be happening is that there is some kind of covert tit for tat 
kind of uh, cyber war going on right now between the Russians and the U.S. intelligence services. We only see little bits of this pop up, but but there does definitely seem to be something going on, and the shadow brokers seem like like a part of that. Yeah, I certainly uh, in in my experience when I was briefed and participating in in stuff like this uh, uh, saw circumstances where one of the things the Russians would do is they would. Uh, uh, partially disclose uh, some things that the Western intelligence agencies thought were secret, that they were using to collect intelligence, and uh, in ways that uh, um, sort of said, we know exactly how you're doing this, we know what you're collecting and from whom, and we think you value that collection more than your ability to hassle us, so uh, bend to our will or we will wreck this capability for everybody so that does make sense the the thing that doesn't really compute here is that these tools are not current so you know things move quickly in this industry Mm -hmm. and you have something that's three years old that's almost an entire generation out of date now a tool that's five years old or even six years old could still be useful because people do run old software but you're already about halfway through the the lifespan uh, of a tool like this so it does seem to me like whatever collection the NSA is doing, they could probably update their tools and their methods to, mm-hmm. to deal with this, even if all of these tools are burned. So it, it seems, I mean, when you compare it to all of the allegations about Russian hacking of the entire U.S. election, the the ability to release a few tools seems like something that the NSA would be irritated by, but but it seems like kind of small potatoes. Interesting. So it is mysterious. Yeah, I think you, you, you might be right, although, you know, there, there's always the possibility that they have more where that came from. Uh, I, though, uh, they've been so cautious about actually releasing this that it feels like they they're really trying to milk it because there may not be a second act. Uh, um, uh, so uh, what this means, though, I guess, is uh, these tools are more valuable probably to uh, credit card uh, thieves than uh, other governments. Is that pretty much what uh, uh, the conclusion you draw? Well, I mean, I think you never know what the NSA is doing. So, for example. There's pretty good evidence that, that a lot of what the NSA is doing is actually looking at banking infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's some some evidence from the Snowden documents that a lot of the tools they deploy are, are really designed to, to track money flows around the world for obvious reasons. Right. And, um, you know, so these these tools, the, you're right. I mean, the tools that the NSA uses to, to, to break into a bank and look at where money is moving around could also be the same tools that would let criminals get into that same bank. Is there so, a... Yeah, there, they're potentially important for surveillance, but they're also very risky to have out in the open. Is there a risk that um, uh, lots of fairly sophisticated players who never thought they were uh, targets of U.S. intelligence will go back and start looking at their uh, logs and say, oh, my God, uh, uh, these tools were used against us and that that will make them less cooperative in the future with uh, the U.S. intelligence? It's possible. I mean, it is possible that if you have logs going back three or four years, you could you could potentially, if you're a sophisticated organization, go back and identify these attacks. On the flip side, now that you know the Russians have the tools at the same time, it's a little bit harder to attribute that to to U.S. hacking. Yeah, fair enough. But it, it de- yeah, definitely could make people change their ways a bit. All right. Um, so, I, uh, Matt, I wanted to ask you about some of the other stuff you've been doing recently because you've, uh, uh, as always, been uh, uh, prolific in the policy uh, or the, the intersection between policy and security uh, uh, technology. Uh, um, a, the EFF brought a lawsuit on your behalf not so long ago uh, trying to strike down the Digital Millennium Copyright Act or at least the part of the DMCA that that says that it's unlawful to crack crypto and other technical security measures if what the technical security measures protect is copyrighted, which, of course, is pretty much everything. Um, and I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about that lawsuit. I'm kind of skeptical, but actually now I've, now that I've read the uh, the complaint, a little less skeptical in the details than I was when I started. But I, why, don't you, why don't you explain what it is that you're trying to do and what the theory is? Sure. So, so the background, for those who aren't familiar with the law, is that the Digital Millennium Copyright Act is a pretty broad law that was passed in the late 1990s when 
the future was digital. Uh, and it basically puts forward a whole bunch of new protections for digital content. And one of the subsections of that law, Section 1201, basically outlines a series of measures that's designed to prevent people from overriding what are called content protection systems. So if you have a system in place that is protecting some copyrighted work, like a copy protection system or something that requires you to only play this work on a certain type of player, um, and uh, somebody hacks that system or reverse engineers it, finds out how to bypass it, uh, they are actually prohibited from distributing uh, the result of that, that reverse engineering. And this section, this subsection of law sounds like common sense. It sounds pretty reasonable when you're thinking about copyright. But the problem is it's been applied uh, very broadly. It's been applied in a number of cases where what's actually happening is not really deliberate protection of a copyrighted work at all. What what happens is you have people who are trying to do computer security research to find vulnerabilities in public systems like voting machines and cars and so on. And, of course, the manufacturers of these systems don't like that. And so they seek the legal tools that they're uh, that are available to them to to try to do something about it. And Section 1201 has been a very widely used tool because it basically what you can do is you can say, well, you know what, my my voting machine contains software and that's a copyrighted work. So when you were doing your reverse engineering and you you know had to break open some seals and get inside this thing, some electronic seals, uh, you were basically um, breaking the law. And there are criminal and civil penalties for doing this. And so the the upshot is it's really prevented us uh, security researchers from doing our job, which is good faith security research. So what this lawsuit is a very long-winded way of saying what this lawsuit is about is not try, we're not trying to overturn you know the entire law just for the sake of it. Really, the purpose is that this law has prevented people like me from looking at the systems that our society depends on and finding the bugs in them that put us all at risk. And that's not really acceptable, and so we think that's you know that that restrains free speech, and we really want the ability to do that kind of work. So I I I I sympathize with the argument, and let me just spell it out uh, because it, it, we are we're going through an era in which uh, things that were stupid are now going to acquire it to intelligence. They're going to have software. They're going to be capable of uh, processing uh, uh, code. Uh, and that gives the manufacturer new opportunities to improve the product. Uh, 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 but it also means that uh, if they choose to take advantage of it, they can impose real limits on what people can do with the things that they buy from the manufacturer. I think it was John Deere who uh, uh, has very sophisticated tractors now that can basically uh, um, uh, 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 till your field for you, uh, uh, um, uh, give individual attention to each furrow depending on what the uh, uh, weather report and the soil moisture in indicates uh, uh, and do it all automatically with uh, little or no human intervention. But when the thing breaks down, uh, if you want to fix it, uh, uh, tinkering with it probably violates the DMCA because uh, you'd have to break some of the crypto in order to uh, uh, to determine what had gone wrong. Um, and so that that, of course, builds a kind of economic lock-in uh, and creates a long-term revenue stream for companies who used to have to worry about shade tree mechanics uh, taking that business away from them. So it's a it's a the Digital Millennium Copyright Act has come to have greater force um, over large chunks of our uh, lives and economy as the Internet of Things has grown more important. So that's right. And we saw recently there was a, a huge denial of service attack, uh, against, you know, a whole, a whole bunch of internet providers recently. And this was done using Internet of Things devices. It was done using cameras and DVRs and, you know, toasters that were, uh, insecure, kind of because the manufacturer couldn't be bothered to make them secure. Uh, these devices were installed in people's houses and then they were attacked by, uh, criminals on the internet who used them to basically send traffic to uh, Twitter and GitHub and knock down all of these websites. And the problem is, for researchers like myself, if we want to try to stop that kind of attack, we have to do exactly what the law prevents us to do, which is to do reverse engineering, figure out how these Internet of Things devices work so we can actually find the bugs and fix them. So, um, But it's very difficult to do that when there's a law in our way. So here's, here's, here's where I 
Get, get off the bus. Uh, I may get back on later, but uh, um, the idea that this is a First Amendment violation strikes me as laughable. If I put up a fence, if the government puts up a fence around a military base uh, and I can't see in it, I don't get to bring a lawsuit against the government saying, uh, you put up a fence, I'm a reporter, I'd like to get on the other side of the fence so that I can do my job of reporting on whatever military activities are going on on the other side of the fence. Uh, that's not a First Amendment argument. Yes, you're a reporter, but what you want to do is trespass. You want to violate a law that is not aimed at your speech, but aimed at your activity. And isn't that really what's what's going on here? The, 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 uh, the government has said, we do not want you to break the encryption uh, uh, capabilities, the security tools that are built in, because we believe that once people start breaking these tools, inevitably the, the copyright's going to get infringed, which is probably true. So first of all, I mean, the, the problem with that analogy is the military base is not your property, right? So the analogy here is I buy a, a remote control car. I buy a toy for my son, and I decide I want to open up that toy and see what's inside of it. Right now, there is a law that says not only can I not unscrew the back of that toy to look inside of it, but if I you know look inside that toy or if it falls apart and I look at it, and I want to write a, a paper, an academic paper describing how it works, I actually can't do that. In fact, there have been there have been academic researchers, a, a team from Princeton that that tried to write a paper and present at a conference, and they received a cease and desist letter from uh, from a law firm from uh, by, by some of the major music studios, the recording industry, uh, and they were told they couldn't do this, and they actually had to sue in order to get access uh, to the ability to publish their but paper. It, it seems to so be... there really is a speech issue here. We know that. Even academic researchers have been prevented from publishing their results. Uh, and of course, if academic researchers, you know, if we can't publish, think of all the, you know, the people who just have blogs and just want to, you know, use their private ability to speak. Uh, they're also being prevented from doing so. Uh, believe me, if I had a choice between the uh, uh, First Amendment rights of bloggers and the First Amendment rights of academic researchers, I don't think academic researchers would win that. But uh, I, <laughs> okay, uh, but I do I, look. I, I the, the problem with this is, you know, you started with a screwdriver. People do not exercise First Amendment rights with their screwdrivers, uh, and uh, uh, you want to describe what you did uh, with your screwdriver, which is fine. But if what you did with your screwdriver wasn't legal, uh, uh, it's hard to say that you have a First Amendment right to take the thing apart and then talk about it. Uh, that's that's what uh, where I where I have a problem with the lawsuit. Look, I, I I I will say this: if I were if I were advising Congress, I would say you should pass a law that says, yeah, there's a Digital Millennium Copyright Act. You can keep people out if you uh, want to. But if you invoke that law, and it turns out there's a security flaw in your device, you are strictly liable for any damages caused by that uh, device because you prevented security researchers from finding the flaws in time to fix them. That's so, perfectly fair, but I, I don't think they can get the courts to kind of make that up under the First Amendment. So here's the problem with invoking the law, the invoking the law idea. The problem is that, that most of the time, firms don't have to invoke that law anymore because the law... The, the precedent just sits has been there. set that if you're a security researcher and you don't want to, you know, spend a million dollars defending yourself and potentially have you or your company go bankrupt, you just don't break the law. Uh, you don't, you don't cross that line because the cost of crossing that line is too high. So there's, there's already a kind of a chilling effect. Well, that, no, that's fair. You, you would, you, you would have to do something like, you know. It, it, when I grew up, you actually had to put a little C on uh, in a circle on a book if you wanted to maintain copyright. Uh, I, and it's still true that if you want to uh, bankrupt people who make uh, uh, illegal copies of your uh, uh, your three minute song, uh, you need to uh, especially uh, designate the uh, uh, the copyright. Uh, so I think you would have to say, yeah, if you want the protection of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, you need to actually invoke it in some public way that people can rely on. Uh, um, and, and if you don't, you don't have the benefit. And if you do, you have the benefit plus the liability that comes with bad security. So, so I think we can we can maybe disagree a little bit on on whether or not it's a good thing for uh, companies to have this kind of legal protection. But let me just submit to you that maybe the copyright laws are not where this protection should be. When I was involved in the exemption process uh, about a year ago, 
uh, I received a series of letters from the auto manufacturers saying that this law, this copyright law, was literally the only thing standing between us and the hacking of the entire motor vehicle industry. At no point in these letters did they ever really invoke a copyrighted work or a fear of their copyrights being violated. They were basically saying that the the copyright law from 1998 is what's you know, defending the nation against hackers. Oh, that's pretty. And so, that's if pitiful. we as a nation really <laughs> want to have a law against hacking, I'm fine with that. But I just don't think we should we should kind of shoehorn this copyright law into that place. Well, I, uh, I, fair enough. It's certainly it's preposterous to say that uh, uh, security is protected by this because, of course, uh, even copyright is not really protected by this because, uh, uh, as we all know, the uh, recording industry has uh, largely tanked because um, if they try to put too high a price on their product, people just steal it. And the same is true for the movie industry increasingly. So um, it ain't working for them uh, in its principal goal. So the idea that it's going to protect security is is sort of silly. Uh, I was struck by uh, uh, this because uh, I've been involved in the case uh, of medical uh, security research. And I know you um, came in and checked the research for that. Uh, uh, MedSec, the company that did... Uh, a security review of St. Jude's um, uh, heart implants found a lot of security uh, problems, identified them, uh, uh, and um, you know, St. Jude didn't worry about any DMCA violation because uh, uh, there probably wasn't one. They just said, um, we think it's a lie, so we're going to sue you for defamation. Uh, that's, a, that's a much more direct chilling effect than uh, the DMCA, isn't it? It is, and there's a lot of there are a lot of unusual features about this particular case. Um, but but yes, I think it's it's. So I was involved, and I should say this. Uh, you know, I was retained by the council uh, for this security firm, uh, basically to come in as an independent auditor and look at their results and, and write about this uh, as part of this law firm, as part of this lawsuit. So just just as full disclosure. However, I mean, what we what we discovered in doing that validation was that yes, there are. Serious vulnerabilities in these devices. These are, by the way, implantable devices that have wires that connect to your heart. And they're capable of giving you a shock that's powerful enough to kill you or stop your heart. Um, so the fact that uh, basically what we found is that somebody at a distance can send a radio signal that causes these devices, these devices to issue that shock. And we demonstrated this. We, we verified it in the lab. So it's really concerning to me. On the one hand, I understand why manufacturers want to protect their reputation and protect themselves from, you know, fraudulent research. At the same time, it's very concerning to me that the response of this manufacturer has not been, oh my God, we need to acknowledge these vulnerabilities and fix them immediately because they're, they're really serious. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it, I mean, this, this was, this was a research announced in August and right. here we are in Christmas, uh, and, uh, uh, the only, <laughs> the only public uh, reaction to this has been the lawsuit. Uh, there's, there's been no change in the technology that, that I'm aware of. Uh, it's, uh, um, it, it, it's quite unfortunate and it, it does say, I, I guess I'll, um, sort of close with this. Uh, it, it, the Internet of Things, as as we've talked about, is just a security disaster. And and I, frankly, I don't see any prospect it will ever be anything other than a security disaster, uh, um, uh, partly because um, the uh, digitization is moving into areas where people haven't had to worry about this kind of security, and um, uh, partly because the uh, tools to uh, implement digitization of a lot of things are either dirt cheap or or it's not going to happen you know nobody's going to spend a lot of money on the security of their light bulbs um a, and so um uh, tools or techniques that protected inadequately our computer networks uh, uh, have no hope of being adopted for uh, the internet of things uh, uh, it makes me wonder whether we've just already lost the security fight I, I, I think that we're, we're winning in a few places. We're starting to get phones that are relatively secure. But the problem is that, uh, you know, it's like an oil stain, right? It's, uh, the, the center, we're, we're barely controlling the center, but at the outs, the edges are spreading so fast, uh, out from our computers into our devices and so on, that there's nothing we can possibly do to keep up with it. It'll, it'll cover the entire pond soon. Uh, and so this is, this is the problem is that we just don't have enough security expertise in the world to secure all these devices. 
So one of the things, and this is uh, this will bring it back to election hacking. Uh, I, it seems to me that one of the one of the tools for uh, dealing with the in, an insecure Internet of Things is to say no to digitization. Uh, uh, and I would submit that we may be on if we if we do this right, we may be on the verge of saying no to digitization in elections uh, of just saying, no, no conducted devices, screw it, uh, come in, fill in the little bubble, uh, and the only electronics we're going to use is something that uh, automatically keep a, uh, a copy of, of your ballot and the record that was generated by that ballot so that we can check them uh, on a spot check basis, and that's the only computerization we're going to allow in our electoral system. I, I think that would be a fantastic idea. Uh, you know, experts have been saying that for for more than 16, 17 years now, and nobody's done anything about it. I hope we finally make that last step. All right. Matt, that was great to talk to you. I, I usually ask uh, my guests if they've got any papers or upcoming talks that uh, our listeners ought to know about. Uh, anything to offer? <laughs> um, I uh, I have an enormous number of things that I'm I'm in the process of working on, but I, I can't think of that one thing that uh, I, I would think is close enough to being ready. I would recommend it to you right now. You are a prolific Twitter uh, user, right? uh, uh, a dauntingly prolific, I have to say. What's your Twitter <laughs> handle for, for our guests? Uh, it is uh, Matthew underscore D underscore Green. I like a long Twitter handle because it means that I get to control more of the 140 characters. Ah, yes. Okay. Well, uh, it is well worth our uh, listeners' while to uh, uh, to follow you there. Uh, uh, Matthew, uh, Michael Vadis, uh, Maury Shank, thank you so much for participating. Uh, uh, the Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedback. Uh, send your questions, suggestions for interview candidates or topics to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, if we get an interview suggestion from you and we uh, end up uh, interviewing the person, we will send one of our rare and valuable limited edition cyber law podcast coffee mugs to you uh, or just leave us a good review on iTunes or some other podcast aggregator. This has been episode 143 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We'll be on a brief break uh, over the holidays. We take traditionally take at least one uh, week off and we might take too, uh, but don't worry, we will be back uh, by early January, uh, uh, and we expect an exciting and uh, cyber law plus tweet-filled approach uh, uh, as the new administration takes over and uh, a vast sea of opportunities for uh, newsmaking is exposed to our view. Uh, we hope you'll join us for those uh, uh, interviews as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology security, privacy, and government.